Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week it's a special edition, an anniversary edition, looking back at uh, well, one of the most memorable World Championships, 1986. Steve Davis uh, was the red-hot favourite, of course, world number one throughout the 80s. He was up against Joe Johnson, who came into the tournament 150-1 to outsider, and it was Joe who got the win. I'm delighted to say he's alongside me to reminisce 30 years on. Before we get on to 1986, Joe, what was your introduction to Snooker? How did you get into it? Um, well, my mum and dad had a, a liberal club in Bradford and they were steward and stewardess and um, when the, all the members had gone home I, I used to sneak in and have a bit of practice. I wasn't allowed because I was too young <laughs> but then um, I, I, I gradually improved very quickly and one of the members um, came in early and saw me practising and uh, he put me in for the boys' championship. Uh, and, you know, never looked back from there, really. You know, the members really looked after me. So what was the route to turning professional? Um, I won the Yorkshire Boys Championship beating Chris Williamson, even uh, Jim Williamson's uh, son. Uh, he was a, a really good player at the time. I think he was defending Yorkshire Boys Champion. And uh, I finished up winning that tournament, and that allowed me to go and play in the... Um, uh, British Junior Snooker Championship at Ackles and Pollock, what uh, Clive Everton organised. And, uh, well, it was marvellous of him to, to do so well for the youngsters. And I finished up winning that one as well, although I wasn't the best player in it because Willie Thorne was in it. And he was certainly better than me because I had a, a conversation with him and asked him how many century breaks he'd had. And he said over 100. <laughs> this is at, at, at 16, by the way. <laughs> And uh, he asked me how many I'd had, and um, well, I, I told him I'd had eight, but I, I hadn't even had one. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't feel like uh, I should have said none. But of course, the nineteen seventies we're talking here, and, and the professional circuit then is not like it is now. It's, it wasn't multi-million pound, was it? So no, actually, no. becoming a professional, I guess, it was a bit of a risk, really. Well, it it wasn't. It wasn't because uh, I did. You're dead right because I didn't turn professional or, or apply to turn professional until nineteen seventy nine, and that was after it had gone to the Crucible Theatre and Griffiths won the championship, and then money started to 
come into snooker. You know, there was there was quite a lot of money at that stage. At that stage, it was a lot of money. You know, mm. because we we'd never seen uh, money like it, it is today. But uh, you know, money started to come into snooker once it went to the Crucible and the BBC got hold of it. It, um, it, it took off from there. But I made a, a conscious decision to stay amateur because I was earning more as an amateur than what I would have done as a professional. Mm. And it was also an era of money matches, wasn't it? And um, it's important to say that before we get on to the, the 86 World Championship, you played Steve a lot uh, before being a pro and you'd played him maybe in money matches and, 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 yeah, and, right. and, and, and beaten him quite a few times. Yeah, well, I, I beat him twice mm. uh, uh, when Barry Hearn came up with a suitcase full of money. <laughs> uh, he, he told me that he had £4,000 in the suitcase to bet uh, for Steve Davis against me and uh, he took me out for a meal afterwards saying he could only get £200 on. <laughs> so uh, he, he said I saved him a lot of money. But, but even in those days, you see, Steve Davis was uh, a terrific amateur player and he was favourite to win as uh, as an amateur in the money match, but I, I did beat him on that on two occasions. OK, so you turn pro and you, you get to a final in, in 83, don't you, the professional players' tournament. You're sort of working your way up up, up, up the list. What were, what were the early days like as a professional? Well, it was really, it was really difficult for me because I had a, a large family and if I didn't win... We didn't eat. Yeah. It was as simple as that, and it was, it was really difficult because, as you said, there was only two or three tournaments. So if you didn't do well in those tournaments, then then you know it was, it was hard work. You know, I, I had other little jobs going on. You know, I was uh, a barman uh, for for the snooker club that I worked mm. for. They used to pay me as a resident professional, but I had to chip in and clean tables, serve beer, you know, things like that. So it was it was really it was really hard at the beginning. And the pressure was immense because, you know, if you don't win, you, you don't eat type of thing. So uh, I, I always found that I couldn't handle that side of pressure. You know, it was too, it was too important, if you like, mm. to, to win. Whereas today's players, they seem to handle it very well. Mm. OK, so 1985, of course, we know Dennis Taylor famously beat Steve Davis on the final black and uh, is world champion. And... Of course, it was different then, the world ranking system. It used to apply for a whole season. So the list comes out after that world championship. And, well, you're not 16, are you? Because this is, this is a story. Now, I must explain to people, we're going to talk about merit points here. Now, if, you, if you're not of an age to remember this, in the, in the old days, 30 years ago, um, the ranking list was a bit different. You'd get ranking points. Basically, you get a point for each, each round you got through. And if you didn't have any ranking points, you got merit points. And, Joe, the ranking list came out and you were 17. But, but merit points came into play here, didn't they? That's right. So the, 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 the ranking... Um list for the new season had me at number 17 and I was okay with that so I would have played the whole season at number mm. 17 but my manager John Rookin he found what's called a merit point and as you rightly say the merit points were something that you got for winning a certain amount of frames so if two people were level on say 10 points each then it's whoever won the most frames during the season you know that got got an extra merit point well my manager found an extra merit point, and that got me into the top 16, which, you know, well, I, I may not have won the World Championship. In fact, I probably wouldn't have done. If I hadn't have found that merit point, I wouldn't have been at Sheffield that following year waiting for a qualifier. I'd have had to qualify to play one of the top 16, and, you know, it, it, it might never have happened. In fact, you know, I'm pretty convinced if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have qualified. 
the most val- have won. the most valuable merit point in history. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, because I, I owe my manager so much, and we're great friends. Even now, we're still great friends. He's still my accountant. You know, we still see each other regularly. You know, he's a great friend of mine, and I owe him a great deal. Mm. Okay, well, let's get to the 1986 World Championship. So, as you say, because you're in the top 16, that's your ranking for the whole season. You go there as of right, no qualifying. First round, you draw Dave Martin. You would have been favourite, I guess, but you've come into the tournament. I mean, no one is saying at the start of the tournament, Joe Johnson's no, going to be world champion. No, absolutely not. Not even my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm playing Dave Martin, and fortunately, I'd played Dave Martin a few weeks earlier. He was a good player, Dave Martin. He'd beaten me before, but uh, I'd been giving him start on that occasion. But he, he was a very good player, but fortunately, I'd played him a few weeks earlier. So uh, I, I felt pretty good about playing him. I knew if I played well, then you know I'd probably win my first match ever mm. at the Crucible because that mm. was my first match ever win. Mm. And of course, the 16 seed in the second round is due to play the number one seed, which is Dennis Taylor. But that's right. But our colleague Mike Hallett knocked him out on the first day, didn't he? And and I guess Mike's game because Mike was a very very attacking player as you were yeah. would suit you more than playing Dennis, who was a right old grinder. Let's be well, honest. Well, absolutely. And and I I don't think I'd ever beaten Dennis. I, you know, we can look it up, but. I don't think I'd ever beaten Dennis in uh, a ranking event. I'd beaten him in exhibitions, but I don't think I'd beaten him in a, a ranking event. So when Mike Hallett won, rightly so, you said that is an attacking player, and he is. But we'd played many times as amateurs, and he'd beaten me and I'd beaten him, so I was comfortable playing him. I mean, it was only a season before, or maybe two seasons before, that Dennis Taylor beat me 10-1. Mm. You know, so that was still fresh in my mind. So when I'd beaten... Um, Dave Martin, I, I didn't think I'd go much further than the next round, you know, because I was playing Dennis. But but uh, Mike Hallett won, and, and I thought, brilliant, we'll have a great game now. Mm-hmm. So you're in the, you beat Mike, you're in the quarterfinals, and of course you're a local man, you know, you're a Yorkshireman, so you're getting, did, were you sensing you were getting a bit of oh, local absolutely. support? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I've been well supported in the Sheffield Barnsley area ever since I was an amateur snooker player. They used to come and watch me play all over the place. So it was like the whole of the Sheffield arena was all supporters for me. And uh, when I was playing Griffiths, a lot of those people that had supported me had seen me play um, uh, Griffiths six, seven years before in the English amateur mm. final. And, you know, they'd, they'd seen me get hammered by him. He, he hammered me in uh, the UK <laughs> championship as well. I think it was 9-2, something like that. And, it, well, he was a great player, Griffiths. I won't say he's my bogeyman because he was a great mm. player. You know, he, probably a better player than what I was at the time. And um, I didn't look forward to playing Griffiths, I've got to be honest, but the alternative would have been Higgins. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, he was playing Higgins, so mm. I didn't really want to play either of them. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to play somebody. Yeah, but that's the match, I think, that, that, where people started to think, actually, this could happen, because he's in front, he's, been, he's expected to win because he's a former champion, and he goes 12-9 in front. Yeah, but but the thing is, I decided to attack him hmm. right from early doors. And I think I took a, a big lead, 4-0 four, four or something like that. And I was leading 9-7 going into the yeah. final session. And I, I did think that I, I, I could beat him then. Hmm. You know, I, I really thought that. And then he, had, he seemed to have four or five games where he didn't miss and he played so well. And probably because of the experience of being there so many times and also that he had that thing over me where he always beat me. So he, he went from strength to strength in that last final session and, uh, well, from from being 9-7 up, I'm 12-9 down and 
I couldn't believe where it had gone. I thought, you know, it's mm. over. But it wasn't over, and you produced probably, well, four of the best frames you've ever seen at the Crucible. Well, four of the best frames I've ever played, yeah. anyway, that's for sure. Uh, I, I, I remember he missed a green to beat me 13-9. He was in amongst the reds, and he was, he, he'd gone a bit too far for the blue, played the green and missed the green and left me in, and I thought to myself, well, if I don't miss from here, then I've got every chance of coming back at him and, you know, trying to win each frame as, as it as it went type of thing. But I, I I just suddenly produced something from somewhere. I don't know where it came from, but, you know, I've often watched the last frame again and because um, it's on YouTube and, you know, I just think, how can you go for that? <laughs> how can you go for that? You know, and, and yeah. so on. You know, yeah. I, 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 thinking about it now, I was crazy. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I was talking to Ronnie O'Sullivan because you did a bit of filming with him, didn't yeah. you, recently for the Eurosport show at, at Cronin Park with the Championship League and he was saying, because he watched a bit of it to prepare for, for talking to you, and he said it was like watching Judd Trump. He said you were just knocking everything in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just found something from somewhere and every player gets that now and then. I've seen it many times with today's players and Steve Davis. Uh, you know, it, it, they all have kind of like a session where they don't miss and you know I only ever that had that once where I couldn't miss and it was a lovely feeling i got to tell you. So you beat Terry and you're in the semis I think I'm right in saying though Joe that he gave you a little bit of advice didn't he about how to handle the rest of the tournament. Uh, oh what a great guy he is it, absolutely you know I mean it, when he beat me in the English amateur final he, he asked me to go out for a fish and chip supper yeah. with him and his wife um, and, and we did mm. uh, and he just seemed to kind of look after me because he knew I was hurting yeah. being an Englishman and then when I played him in the quarter final of the world championship he took me to one side and said you know all the very best you know and um, I hope you do well and you know when when you're finished in this tournament go away and have an holiday so that the press don't hound you mm. he, he gave me so many good tips which I probably didn't take. <laughs> okay, well, the semi-finals. Well, there's two things to say about this. One, obviously, it's one table, so it's it's getting yeah. really serious. But also, you're playing a good pal of yours, Tony Knowles. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'd never played in the one-table setup, and it's like when you walk down into the arena after having you know a week playing on the one-table setup. When you walk down into the arena, it's like another arena mm. with one table there. All of a sudden, it's massive, and you know you and you think to yourself, wow. You know, I'm gonna be playing in this kind of an arena where there's no noise from anywhere. I'm really up for this. You know, I really wanted to play, and I knew I was playing well, beating Griffiths. You know, that was my uh, my final, if you like. You know, having beaten Griffiths for the first time, I knew if I could beat him, I could beat anybody because I'd already played Steve earlier, like we said, and. You know, I'd played Tony many, many times, and as I say, he'd beaten me, I'd beaten him, so I knew if I played like I was playing, I'd have a good chance. Mm. So you beat, you beat Tony Knowles pretty comfortably, and then you're in the final, and I'm sure a lot of people would have said, oh, good, great for Joe, what a great run he's had, but yeah, yeah, he's yeah. playing Steve Davis, who, let's be mm. honest, I know he had the slip-up against Dennis Taylor, yeah. but he was far and away the, the number one player of the time, wasn't he? I mean, uh, what, what, what were your thoughts going into that? Were you, th were you thinking, well, worst-case scenario, I'm going home with more money than I've ever seen, or, yeah, or, yeah. or I've actually got a really good chance? No, no, I, I think uh, the first thing that you said mm. is I'm going home with more money than <laughs> I've ever seen. I've got the ranking points, I've climbed up from number six, 16 to number 8 or 9, something like that. So I was safe for another two years at least. Mm. So what a great feeling that was, you know, to, to be safe in the top 16 
for another couple of years. That meant I was going to play in the Benson Edges, I think it was then, mm. right, which is the Masters. Um, I, I didn't think for one minute that I was going to win, but I also didn't think I was going to lose. Mm. I just wanted to play. Yeah. So, and that was a great feeling to have, you know, just to want to play snooker against the best player who'd ever lived at that mm. time in front of millions of people. You know, my deepest fear probably would have been 18 nil. I mean, it happened to John Parrott two or three years later, didn't it, where he lost 18-3. Well, that would have been my nightmare, you know, to have lost something like that. So I suppose that I gave myself, I gave myself um, an easy task because if I won one frame, I'm, I'm doing well. Mm. You know, if mm. I win two, I'm doing well. Mm. And, and, and just like that, just I told myself to enjoy it. My manager said to me, look, Joe, enjoy it. You know, you're here, you might never get there again. Enjoy it. You know, and I did. I really did. But at some point there on the second day, you you're, you you must be thinking, well, actually, I could win this. No, I didn't no? think that, David. No, I didn't. No, I didn't allow myself to think that like that. But I didn't allow myself to think about losing or winning, yeah. just playing. And it, and it was a lovely feeling because I expected him to come back at me, even when I was 14, 12 up, I think, going into the last session. And... Um, and I thought to myself, right, well, he's going to come back, and but I'm going to get a chance at some stage, and I've got to take my chances. He's going to come back at me. I'll take my chances. He's going to come back at me. And when it was 17-12, I fully expected him to win two or three on the on the spin. you know. And then I, I, I said to myself, well, I'll probably experience pressure if he gets back to 17-16. But right now, I, I don't feel any pressure. I just mm. keep playing the way I am playing, relaxed and enjoying it. And... And that's exactly what I did, but I didn't allow myself to think about winning. So what was it like then uh, in the last frame, you know, you, with this great footage of you kind of <laughs> when the match is won, you, you're knocking everything in and you're yeah. smiling. Was it sinking in then, what you'd achieved? Yeah, it was then. But uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, when he interviewed me a couple of weeks ago, um, he took the final red that I had to win the championship, which left Steve Davis needing snookers. And he said to me, what a fantastic red this is to win the World Championship. It was dead easy. You couldn't miss it. <laughs> and I remember think, thinking to myself, well, this I only need this red. And now we need snookers, but I'm going to make sure that uh, I get the colour. Whatever I do, I'm going to make sure he gets, I get the colour because then he's going to need two or three snookers. I couldn't even work the score out mm. how many snookers he needed. So when I potted the pink afterwards and left myself the long yellow, I knew then I'd won. And I thought, well... I can't miss the yellow. Mm. And, and, you know, from that moment on, whatever ball I'd have been faced with, I would have bought it. Yeah. And do you remember the moments afterwards? You know, you'd be interviewed by David Vine, getting the trophy, all that stuff. Can you yeah. remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, I can, I can remember it. Because uh, every now and then, uh, the kids, meet, well, they're not kids anymore, but, you know, we watch it every now and then, or somebody comes round to the house and, you know, we watch it, and the feelings all, are all there because I'm holding the trophy up and... And what have you? But I do remember thinking to myself, you know, it, it's a lonely spot that one over there where Steve mm. is, and and I really felt sorry for him because he'd lost the year before on the black ball, and he'd lost again this this year to me, and it, there was no doubt who the best player in the world was, you know, consistent, consistently the best player. He was number one in the world, and uh, and I just felt a little pang of guilt, if you like, you know, at, at uh, taking the trophy off him. Mm. Okay, well, if if we split your life into two, two Joe, we we've got everything up to you winning the world championship, and then everything since, because everything changed, didn't it? That mm. day, you suddenly became 
a household name out yep. of nowhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was different then because there was 18 million people watching it. There was 18 and a half million for Den Dennis Taylor, but the um, producer phoned me up and told me that there was over 18 million for mine. So it was a an instant instant fame i was on this morning the next day did this is your life i did lots of shows with the band and mm. and what have you i was all over the place on on every tv channel and it, it just got a little bit too much eventually mm. so um i decided not to do any more at all and mm. i just said no not to everything mm. because you know you're, you're a family man and you you, you know you, you like to have your private life but all of a sudden i mean there's literally photographers outside your house that's right the f very first morning there was you know? <laughs> i mean we, we didn't get in while five o'clock because you know, we went to the party over at morley but at seven o'clock the next morning there was 20 30 people outside the mm. house all clicking cameras and what have you so we, we invited them into the house made them all cups of tea and everything and got on tremendously with all of them mm. But the problem is, it kind of it's hard to control it, isn't it? You know, you're at it the mercy. Yeah. yeah, it was new then, but yeah, I was at the mercy of whoever knocked on mm. my door. In fact, we had to move within a month because people every day, night, mm. every minute of the day, you know, somebody would come up and it'd feel free to knock on Joe's door mm. for a, for an autograph. So we had to move. You know, it was lovely where we were because we'd only been there about a year. It was our dream house. It was just a small little semi. Um, and six of us was in three bedrooms. It was uh, it was lovely though. Yeah, yeah. So what were the sort of things that you, that you went on TV shows, shows like the Wogan Show and all that well, sort of stuff, well, chat shows? And... Uh, the, uh, yeah, the the Wogan Show was the only one that I didn't go on right. because I, the, he asked me and I just said no. You mm. know, at the, this stage, I think he asked me in eighty seven. Mm. So I, I can't remember the amount of shows, but it, it was everything. I, I went on. Absolutely everything. And uh, when I did this morning, I did it again, you know, a few weeks later. Then again, a few weeks later. And all the, all the year through that year, the BBC followed me around so they could do a programme called Ordinary Joe, which they showed the, uh, the night before the Defence of the World Championship. And, you know, I had them with me most weeks. You know, every, they were filming all the time. Mm. So uh, there was no escape from it, really. You know, I just... It was it was great at the beginning, but then it just got a little bit too much for me because mm. I'd gone from nobody to to fame, like you can't believe. Mm. And of course, you've got to still play, and and the next season inevitably right. inevitably not only is your time taken up with all the stuff you've you've described, but suddenly you're a scout now. People want to yeah. beat you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and bear in mind that you know I'd, I hadn't won any tournaments. I think I'd, I'd been to the final of the. PPP and I'd been to the semi-final of the Mercantile Credit, but I hadn't won any tournaments, so I'm not going to start winning everything mm. straight away. So I, w I was really under pressure because everybody <laughs> expected me to win tournaments mm. and it, it just wasn't going to happen. I was going to probably do better than what I did before, but I, I didn't suddenly spring from number 16 to number one. Mm. You know, that takes a long time and at this stage, I, I was at the back end of my career at 35, I think it was. Mm. It's a little bit like Stuart Bingham's had this season, where suddenly every match he plays is sort of high profile, whereas before, you know, he could get through a few rounds That's and no right. one would really take any notice. That's right, and if he got to the semi-finals of the tournament, he'd probably be disappointed, but he'd, he'd look back on reflection and think, well, I've had a good tournament. Mm. Well, he probably won't think like that now. He'll probably think, you know, as world champ... Well, other people do anyway, whether he doesn't or not. Other people think, well, why isn't he winning tournaments? Mm. Well, because everybody's so good out there. Mm. That's why. And they want to beat the world champion. Mm. So, yeah, you didn't have 
okay, a great season, but you get to the 1987 World Championship and the first day we know he's always nervous with the defending champion. You get through that one, I think, 10-9 against Eugene Hughes. Yeah. And then, all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, you're back in the final. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't as easy as that, <laughs> David, I can tell you. Because I'd, I played Eugene Hughes, as you said, mm. and I'd played him all the summer before, previously, in Australia. And he'd beaten me every single day. So when the draw came out for the World Championship, I said, I aren't bothered who it is as long as it's not Eugene. <laughs> and it was Eugene. Yeah. And it was a, a very, very difficult game and it went to the decider, as you say. Mm. Very tough. And then the next round was a little bit easy. I think I played Murdo McLeod. But uh, the quarter final was against a certain Stephen Hendry. And that was one of the most difficult matches of my career, without a doubt, because I played so well in the first session to lead 7 or 8-1. I think I even went on the resumption 9-1. I'm, I'm not sure, but I know that he came back to, and levelled it at 12-all. And, and the way he did it, I hadn't, I hadn't seen Snooker like it. Mm. You know, I'd seen Higgins play fast, and but this kid was playing fast and controlled, and he, he was going for everything, and it, and it was going in. And I, I just couldn't believe how good he was at 16, 17. Mm. But there, there you are again. You, you do beat him. You're in the semis again. And are you starting to think, well, this, it happened last year. Why shouldn't it happen this year? <laughs> well, I, I've got to say that the pressure was really off me in the semi-final mm. because I was down to the one-table setup again, which I, I really do like when when all eyes are upon the two players. I, I mean, I really do like that setup because you've got full concentration and you've got millions of frames to play, it feels like, where you can settle down. Mm. You know, you, you can have a bad session and, and then you, you, can, you can play again and it's a different day. So, yeah, it was like I was at home all of a sudden. Mm. You get through that and you in the final again, it's Steve Davis again. Yeah, it had and, to be him, didn't it? But he must have been under pressure as well because he's lost two world finals on the spin now and he's, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, there's pressure on him, he's winning most of the other tournaments but this is the one you, you've kind of got to win. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, I mean, there's no excuse for him this time, he's, he's played me last time so I think it did set his stall out a little bit differently from maybe the year before. I think the year before he was a bit too relaxed thinking that he, he was going to win at any time. I mean, we've watched matches, we've commentated on matches where the better player hasn't took the other player quite so seriously and found himself in trouble. Well, I think that's what happened a little bit with Steve the year before. And, uh, you know, this year he really did try his hardest to, to start off well. And, uh, I, you know, I was delighted to stay with him. Mm. Well, it was very close, 18-14. In fact, you're the closest... Uh, yeah. First time champion ever to actually retain in the title. Yeah, yeah, but um, it, it was great playing Steve Davis. Yeah. I, I, I was half pleased for him at the end. Right. I really was because it, you know it's his third year, and um, I thought if I'm going to lose to anybody, you know, I'd like it to be him because he's such a great guy, great gentleman, great sportsman, and he's gracious in defeat. The way that I hope I was, you know, I can't remember what I said the second year but um, he's he's a he's a great ambassador for the game and I, I, I didn't mind losing to him mm. so here we are Joe 30 years on we're going to be we'll be at the crucible for, for Eurosport commentating and, and when you walk in they have all the pictures of the former champions on the, on yeah. the wall the, the roll of honour what's it like seeing your face and your name amongst well, it, all that it brings back a lot of memories David it really does you know because it, 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 I have so many beautiful memories from there and hardly any bad ones, even though I got beat 10-1 by Dennis Taylor. The, the magic of the Crucible 
is is something wondrous, you know, to walk down the steps and be cheered on by my own crowd, as it were. It, the, the feeling is incredible, you know, that you, you can't beat it. Mm. You mentioned that you sometimes get the, the tapes out to, to watch, but I think I'm right in saying that on one occasion you found that your, your kids, they were kids then, it actually <laughs> taped over, over some of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, that was about three or four years after winning the championship we got the tapes out to look at it and it was he man of the universe so yeah and nobody owned up to it but yeah. i suspected it was matthew because he liked he man at that time so yeah but I, I told the bbc about it well it was in the it was in the papers it was big news it was in the papers that it had been taped over and the bbc sent me yeah, the full the, the full video of all, all the final mm. which is fantastic of it the thing is, though, people still remember it. I mean, we've been out and people have sort of come come, come over. And, and I think it, it's a couple of things. One, obviously, the fact that it was such a story. You know, you sort of come yeah. from nowhere. But also, definitely, the fact you beat Steve. You know, they recognised yeah. it wasn't like the draw opened up. You yeah. beat the best player in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and people do still remember it. They mentioned the shoes. Yes. You know, the pink, red and white shoes that I wore. And, uh, well, it, it was a one-off and 18 million people did see it. Mm. You know, and it was it was rerun for a, a couple of years after that, where they were just looking at my shoes and things yeah, like that. Yeah, so yeah. What it was wonderful. What advice would you give to Stuart then, Stuart Bingham, walking out on on that Saturday morning? I mean, what can you say to him? Well, I, it, there's nothing you can say to him because he's going to feel all the nerves of being world champion and everybody saying to him, uh, you know, how do you feel about the Crucible Curse? It, it'd have got that probably. 360 days out of 365. You know, somebody will have said that to him every single day. How do you feel about this crucible curse? So there's nothing you could say to anybody that could alleviate that that pressure, if you like. The only thing I would say is try and enjoy it, but it's so difficult to enjoy it when you walk out there as a defending champion and you're desperate to win Mm. your first match. I don't know. You'd probably need to be hypnotised. <laughs> well, that may be an option for him. And, <laughs> and, and, and before, just as we start to, to wrap up, Joe, you, you still play, Snicker, don't you? still enjoy playing? Oh, ah, yes, yeah. yeah. Play, I play every day. I practice every day if I can, except Saturdays and Sundays. Well, no, I play Saturdays after the uh, coaching academy. So, yeah, I play every day. I play in the seniors. I do exhibitions. Mm. I still play exhibitions. I've just had the laser treatment done and I'm waiting for my left eye to, to come a little bit better. Um, I've, had, I've had the best surgeons looking at it and they say that they'll operate again once it's settled down again so I, I love playing every day and um, I, I was making maximums up until having my eyes lasered but uh, it got to a stage where I'd started to uh, struggle with my vision and the maximum brakes weren't coming anymore and the, the big century brakes weren't coming as, as quickly so I decided to have something done and if it didn't work then I wouldn't have been any worse off from where I am now. So I'm just waiting for my eye to get better to start playing well again. OK, and finally, let's just talk about this year's World Championship because it's coming up very soon. A lot of contenders aren't there. There really are this year. I mean, we always seem to say it's more open than ever, but it really is. Well, <coughs> I think Ronnie O'Sullivan recently said that there was 13 mm. players that could win it. But there's got to be more than that when you think about it because you could get one of the qualifiers coming through and winning it. I mean, it has happened before. Griffiths did it, and uh, so did Sean Murphy. You know, there's some great players right down there in the depths of snooker. What 
all of a sudden they can start to believe in themselves once they hit the last 16 quarterfinals, semi-finals. All of a sudden the world changes. And if that happens with one of the new boys, then, you know, they could do it. I, I think that we could have shocks in snooker even now. I mean, we did have a couple of shocks this year. Kyron Wilson won a tournament. You know, nobody expected him to win one. But he's proved himself worthy of being a champion. You know, he's, he's climbing. He's nearly there in the top 16. There's other players. There's Luca Brussel. There's, there's various players that are playing well down below who have got the ability. They just need the belief. And as you can testify, better than most, winning the World Championship changes your life, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, I mean, I'm working now because, uh, you know, I've won the World Championship. So I still do exhibitions because I won the World Championship. If it hadn't been for that, if my manager hadn't found that merit <laughs> point, you know, I don't know what I would have been doing, really. Well, it was a great uh, championship, that 86 championship, still very memorable, and uh, enjoy the 30-year the anniversaries. I know there'll be a lot, of, oh, oh, a lot of talk about it. Thanks for being my guest, Joe, and thanks yeah. to everybody for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.